Blog Talk Radio. Mortgages should be illegal because you're getting robbed every month. With a typical $200,000 30-year mortgage, you'll end up paying over $400,000 after interest. Hi, I'm John Commuta, creator of the Transforming Debt into Wealth System. My proven system can eliminate your mortgage and all your debts. Let me send you a powerful free CD. For your free CD, call 
publisher of the South Street Journal, will be joining us shortly. The song was just a little bit different, wasn't it? That was Omo Go Reloaded, and he is a new member of Chicago's Black Business Network.com, and he sent that over this week, and I enjoy that sound. It's a little bit different for me, but he sent me the word, so that helps me a little bit. And uh, I can rock with that. I really can. You will be hearing more for, from Idris. That's his name, Idris. I'm going to go reload it. As a matter of fact, if you listen to the last show in our archives from Tuesday, March the 1st, you will hear a half an hour interview with Idris. Now, that's what we do for our members. We do all that we can to help them move to the next level of success. Come on over and join us today and touch the world. Plus, we're looking for new music. Visit our, visit our website for more information. Join us every Thursday evening right here for Black Wall Street USA. We're here from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. on Thursday evenings. We want you to be a part of what we do in sustaining and increasing black businesses across this country. The show has a national focus. We'll reach out to organizations and individuals across the nation in our efforts to connect the dots, the spiritual dots of our people across this land. We will bring forth ideas and agendas that are already in place. We will try to let the nation know what works in our communities. And this evening, Ron and I will talk business, but first we will talk history, our history and your history. Now, although the FBI now considers the murder of Emmett Till a closed case, closed case, in our hearts and minds, the circumstances of his death will never be closed in our memories. The issue will never be dead, for the more things change, the more they remain the same. I was born in 1955, the year of his death, so I don't, of course, remember all that took place that year, but Reverend Parker will be able to share that with us. And I don't remember... The first time I heard the immature story, but I do know that I couldn't understand the why of it. I was confused as, as to why someone would die for whistling at a white woman. My grandmother explained explained it to me in the pain. That pain has, has never left me at that point of recognition. It was a few Sundays ago when the case manager for the FBI, the president of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, and one of the physicians did a panel discussion discussion on the autopsy findings of Emmett Till at the Chicago Cultural Center downtown in Chicago. That was the first, that was um, the day that I watched, I guess, Reverend Willer Parker wipe the tears from his eyes as they showed the infamous picture of Emmett Till's battered body. That uh, photo is 55 years old. Willer Parker the cousin of Emmett Till was with him the night that he was abducted in Mississippi. We appreciate him joining us this evening. And I'd like to say just one more thing about that Sunday afternoon. People, uh, certain mentalities wish for us around this planet to pretend that we are colorblind, uh, wish to say that we are all the same. We're not all the same. I can't be you. You can't be me. It, it just will never happen. On that Sunday before Reverend Parker came down into the general sitting area of the Chicago Cultural Center, someone else came along and approached me at the table that I was sitting at, uh, relaxing and reflecting on the evening's event. It was a white man and his wife. They stopped and asked me, why are you so interested in the Emmett Till case? And I was sort of taken aback. I was sort of angry a little bit, but I was really just caught off guard by the question. I thought they just stopped to speak to me. And the question caught me off guard, and my reply back was, I was born in 1955. I'm a black woman. This is my history. And his response was, oh, you were born in 1955? 
And so that's what I'm talking about. You can never be me. I can't be you because you will never, ever, 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 ever understand. For the more things change, the more they remain the same. We wanted to welcome you to Black Wall Street USA for Thursday, March 3rd, with that special guest, Reverend Willa Parker. You may also listen to a rebroadcast of this show at WJPC Chicago Saturday mornings, 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. That's WJPC Chicago. Our call-in number is 347 three two six nine four seven seven. The chat room is open. Yes, I remember to open the chat room. Leave your company information and website links in the chat room. That's how we connect. If you'd like to speak to our guest, our host, or you have a question or comment, simply press the number one. That lets us know that you want to come on the air. We'll say the last four digits of your telephone number and we'll say you're on the air with Black Wall Street USA and you will know that you're live. I'm Sonia Cassandra Purdue, founder of CBBM. Our guest is Reverend Parker. He's on the line. But first, let's welcome the chairman of Black Wall Street Chicago to the Internet Waves. Welcome to the show, Ron Carter. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, Sonia. How about yourself this evening? Doing great, doing great. All right. Are you hear me nice and clearly? I hear you very clearly, very clearly, Mr. Carter. We want to take a few minutes here. We're going to bring Robin Parker on the line. We're going to bring our guest on the line, and then we'll after, uh, because he does have another engagement appointment this evening, and after we speak to him, we're going to talk about Black Wall Street and all the things that's going on with Black Wall Street. Is that okay with you, Chairman? That's okay. That's great. Okay, let's welcome Reverend Willie Parker to the line. Reverend Parker, welcome to Black Wall Street USA. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you. Okay. okay. Yes, um, Reverend Parker, it's my pleasure to uh, and my insightfulness to uh, to talk with you and to have you to be a guest. Uh, Black Wall Street is uh, Black Wall Street on Chicago's Black Business Network is primarily a business uh, radio program. But as we have uh, witnessed the what you have experienced, what your family have experienced, and, and from the years, what the United States has experienced uh, regarding uh, Emmett Till, you know, I mean, we've heard the story and you have lived the story. What does that have to do with economics, if you can? Well, uh, yeah, uh, economics has been a, a part of African Americans' life since they've been here, and uh, the reason America has done as well as they have is because of the black slave labor and the black labor, cheap labor. And that's why they've done as well as they have. It's always kept us farther behind. So the the case with uh, uh, Emmett Till, even as our name, Black Wall Street, is really came from Tulsa, Oklahoma, where the same type of situation happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and then probably many other places that we're not even aware of. Do Is there some type of psychological uh, norm about 
white women, black men, and white men, and the whistle of, of white women, and this whole integration, uh, and you lived it. Is that when you seen Emmett Till, based on when he whistled at this uh, Caucasian woman, what was your thoughts when he did it, when you first noticed that he did that? Well, when he first did it, we could not believe that he did it, and we would have never done anything like that in a thousand years, and we were very alarmed. Emmett Till had no idea where he was and what he was dealing with, but we knew this all. I was born there, and he just didn't know anything about the racial mores that existed at the time. Mm-hmm. Is Do you look at that as being a, a culture that has developed or just plain old, would you call it racism more or prejudice more of what happened? I think it's a cultural you know, development. I think, go ahead. You want to finish yeah, or more institutional implementation of race. I don't, I'm not for sure. What, I mean, if you, you were the, a young uh, teen at that time, now that you're uh, an older, grown, and have experienced a lot, how do you view it then when it happened and do you accept it now? I'm trying to get a feel of then and now based on your perception. In terms of uh, economics or in terms of racial things, racial Both. 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 And did, what happened to Emmett Till, did it have any economic uh, barriers to it, or was it just plain old prejudice, racism, or hatred? I don't know. Well, it, it was racism that existed, and it just the way of life, and certain norms were set into place since they brought us to this country, and uh, we were looked upon as second-class citizens. We're still not looked upon, and we still don't have that off the books yet about that four-fifths, I believe it's called. And, and it always calls you to be the last, first to uh, be fired and the last to be hired. And it always affected you uh, economically because you were paid less. Uh, I remember at one time, uh, white men with an eighth-grade education made more than a college, man, college black man that had graduated from college. So they, they controlled it. Mm-hmm. So that was in place, and, it's, and it prevailed as much as possible even now. Same thing mm-hmm. with women. There is a, uh, uh, if I can, um, Sandra Perdue. She has um, a, a book that she uh, uh, asks in Blacks the Tough Questions. Uh, did you ask Emmett Till that tough question at the time that he did that? Did you, you know, a question of do you know what you're doing or why you did that? Did you ask him that tough question? No, the question that the big thing that came out was Emmett Till's mouth. But after he saw that we were uh, alarmed of, and excited by what he did, the question was, "Do not tell my grandfather." That was the big question, and that was the discussion. So we promised him that we wouldn't tell. And as teenagers at that time, we we kind of forgot about it. But there was a young girl that said, "I know those people. This is not over." And so you're going to hear some more from this. So we didn't pay it any attention. So the question mm-hmm. was not to, the question we're talking about. Do not tell tell what happened. So uh, the the murder happened what days or weeks after the whistle? After the whistle, 
they came to the house three days later, and, and we think that he was killed at the same time. He whistled on a Wednesday. They came Sunday morning, and they found his body uh, three days later on Wednesday. So that was, um, <laughs> was there any uh, indications of what made them come three days later after the whistle? Actually, when he whistled, the husband was out of town on uh, taking care of some business. And uh, when he came home and he was told about it, that's when he came. That's why it was three days later. So, um, and you were in bed with him at the time that they came and got him? When they came to the house, I was in the first bedroom. So I heard them okay, talking about that. But you seen them come to, in the house. Yeah, they came to my bedroom first with a gun and a pistol, gun and a flashlight, and then they went to the next room where Emmett Till, the third room where he was at. Uh, before I go on, are how do you feel? I'm pretty sure you have told this story many times. How do you feel mm-hmm. about kind of telling this story a lot? Well, when it happened to Emmett. I, I didn't accept it that it was him, and I never had any remorse or sorrow. And I said I'll always see him again. Now, when I tell it, uh, every time we show the DVD, uh, I, I don't know why it didn't bother me then, but I cry. I just can't, you know. I don't understand it at all, but it, it really affects me now. Um, did you know what was getting ready to happen to him when they took him from the house? I felt when I heard them talking outside, I felt that I'm getting ready to die. So I'm getting ready to die. I felt it very strongly. And I started praying. I said, God, if you just let me get through this, I'll, I'll do what's right. And it affected my life this day and time. I am a uh, minister, and I'm, I work with uh, uh, children and a pastor of the church that started Emmett Hill's mother and grandmother's house in 1926. So it, it, it impacted me greatly. Mm-hmm. How do you um, how do you deal with it, uh, even to the point that um, is it something today that as you walk down the street and no one knows who you are, is there something that as you will walk down the street or you have walked down the street that reminds you of what happened then? When I see different races, when I see black and I see white, I'm, I'm constantly reminded. I'm constantly aware of, of uh, the way situations are because you're constantly reminded uh, every hundred in some way or other that you are black. And once you got one drop of black blood in you, and I tell the white kids that when I go to schools, I say, if you come out tomorrow, you have one drop of black blood in you, your life will change forever. And that's something we have to live with. And you never, you can't forget it, even with the changes and improvements. You can't forget that. Do you, um, when the, I guess when the Chicago Defender, uh, I think it was the Chicago Defender or Ebony Magazine, uh, first of all, did you see his photograph prior to it being uh, printed publicly? I, I yeah, I, yeah, I saw him at the film. I saw him at the film. It, it just, it, was, it looked like a monster. I mean, to me, that was not Emmett in the castle, you know. So 
you can't have any whole lot of feelings uh, for Emmett at that time because it's not him, you know. And I don't know if I was in a state of shock. Still don't know why I felt that way, but I just didn't accept the fact that there was Emmett. I said, I'll see him later. And, and I hope to someday. Did the, uh, the community, uh, you know, again, this here is something that happened uh, where it was a, been a cold case, as uh, Sanjay indicated. But during the process that it was a cold case, and you somewhat kind of lived and living this cold case before the murders been uh, brought to justice, uh, they were brought to justice in what year? 19, uh, was it in the 50, 90s or 2000? September 1955. September, what was that? 1955. Yeah, I'm talking about, but they was brought to justice just recently. Oh, you mean when they opened up the case to do the investigation? Right, and they was uh, found guilty what year? Uh, sir, but what happened is they confessed. Remember, they confessed about a few months later. So mm-hmm. there was never in there was never in the trial. Uh, uh, they opened up the case just to do the investigation. The FBI did. Of course, back then they wouldn't touch it at all. They could not prosecute. Only people could prosecute was the state of Mississippi, and it had to be in that district, the Tallahatchie, Tallahatchie County District. Those were the only people that could pro- prosecute, and it was a black judge there. And she said they didn't find enough information to bring anybody to trial because the guys that did it, they have long been gone. They have been long dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, 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 they confessed right after and made about $4,000 for their story to the Loop magazine. Mm-hmm. So well, from the time that all of that happened to to the date that, 71st Street was uh, claimed uh, in the Till Drive. Was that any satisfaction, or have you had any type of relief based on the historical uh, time frame from the day that it happened till now? Was there something that happened historical that gave you some sense of relief what you uh, have witnessed? Well, we're still waiting for closure. It's not completely closure until you know exactly what happened. But uh, those kind of things uh, play a part in the Teal deal. I guess you know about the Teal deal. That's a deal that has been signed uh, into law by President Bush, and President Obama allocated uh, $11 million per year for 10 years to pursue cases that date back from 1970. And uh, uh, yeah, yeah before 1970. So that gives you some uh, sense to know that we have changed some and that image still speaks from the grave. Okay, and how, was he, how old was he when he when this happened to him? Fourteen. Mm-hmm. So um, as you look at the, I guess, the, the civil rights and the, the movements and the... Uh, even if we can look at the many people cried when Barack Obama became president, and some people cried for almost free at last, and some people cried because justice at last. 
Some people cry for I don't believe it. Have there been a sense of something historically that has happened to you that gave you a sense of at last regarding Emmett Till? Uh, you know what bothers me? The plebeian, the common people, everyday people. I look at our situation and we have regressed to the point where we only have in most cities, less than 50% African-Americans graduate away from high school. Some cities only 30%, and there's no outrage. My heart is very sad, and those are things that really, really grassroots things that really concerns me. So I sure appreciate the fact that Obama uh, got to be elected president, but I'm, I'm working on the streets. I'm working down at the bottom, and things are not good at all. Hmm. Um. Then uh, let me, uh, if I can, kind of piggyback on what you stated. Let me ask you, your age again? Thank you, brother. What's your age? I'll be 72 March 18th. Well, being 72 years old and what you have uh, witnessed in life to this date and you can make a statement that things are not good at all, uh, how can you or are you comparing your youth dealing with what you had to deal with, such as what happened to Emmett Till, to how you are on the streets today? Is there a fair comparison, or are you saying that Back then, your youth was a little bit better than the youth today? What I am saying is that the opportunities that exist now, if my father had had opportunities that we have today, he'd be a much, much uh, better person. The opportunities now, what has happened is that we lost our home. We lost our families. Back then, we had 85% of American families headed by two people. Now we've left it basically to the women, and it's just it's, it's, it's disastrous. And it seems like we that are at the top, people who are doing well, they don't see it. There's no outrage among us, and nobody can say it was from us but us. I had a meeting last night with black men. We tried to get black men together out here in Summit, Argo, Illinois, to address these issues. They're there, and, and it's not getting better for us. It's getting worse. The dropout rate, if you drop out of school, what, what chance do you have, you know? It bothers me. What what do you contribute that to? I mean, let's say that back then, yes, there were more of a family structure and it was more of a two uh, family households and compared to now. But what do you think happened that our family structure has falling apart, and you kind of look at today even to the point that the education probably wasn't as uh, more astute then as it is now, but you still look at our education level, it's not in parity to the education of achievement back then. What do you can, what you can why is that? Why do you say that that is? And based on your experience being a seventeen, I mean seventy-two year old man. 
Well, one might being a pastor, and I look at it from probably different perspective than you or others would. I say the church has failed. The church has not done. We, we as ministers and pastors, we have not done what we could have. I mean, everything in the black community basically worked through or uh, depended on the church, and we we have failed. We have failed. We 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 need to have some outrage. We need to have some outcry. So we we, we fought for a lot of social changes. And we tend to have made some, well, we didn't make gains in those things, but we left our family behind. Uh, the other and, and uh, seeing to our kids getting the education they got, we're so busy with, our, with ourselves sometimes, we just left those things behind. And I think that's definitely what happened. Mm-hmm. We didn't carry the thing, whole thing along. We just, we went for the top and we left the others behind. We didn't take them along with us. So again, if I can take advantage of your age, mm-hmm. you have seen, you know, again, when you was fourteen years old, mm-hmm. compared to the fourteen today, mm-hmm. you were fourteen years old, more afraid of white races, mm-hmm. and the fourteen today is afraid of. Uh, their peers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, so, is that plan institutional type of uh, uh, Willie Lynch syndrome, or have the black community allowed that transformation to happen to them themselves? I think it's both. I think the system gave. Uh, women money, and they gave them more Ill- illegitimate children they had, the more money they gave them. So that said, really they tried to they fixed it so that a black woman really didn't need a black man for economics because that was taken care of, maybe sexually, but economically they didn't need them. So the system, when I look at the system, I said they did not help us. They put us in a bad position. And I know they gave us things, but you just can't keep giving people things without some kind of responsibility. Or accountability. So that knocked the black man, I feel, out of the equation, except for uh, uh, certain things. But I think that was definitely one of the big things. And then we as a people, like I said, nobody can, Jesse Jackson always said, nobody can save us from us but us. We needed to stay focused and make sure that our boys were training properly. Men are supposed to be the head. Innately, in a man, he wants to be the head. And most uh, African-American women, if they're not careful, they have to marry down. And when you marry down, it's going to create a conflict most of the time in most families because uh, you got a woman that's with a college degree and you don't have one and she's making more money probably, and it creates it creates havoc. Well, yeah, I remember when I was a kid growing up in Robert Taylor Homes, and I used the story of uh, whenever this uh, young white lady came in a project, all the men scattered, and I always wondered why my father had his uh, his clothes in my closet, and he always go hide in the bed when this uh, white lady come knocking on the door. Mm-hmm. And then I always wondered why, when this white lady came in the neighborhood, all the men go across the street and stand in front of the liquor store. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I finally got aware of that, but as 
I became aware of that institutional racism that is being developed on our family structure, and you indicated the role of the church have not been doing all that it could. Uh, and naturally, you know, so you being a minister and you making a statement like that, how do you how do you accept that, you know, as you being a minister? You a minister, you saying that the church is the black church has not done all they could and and yet we still seeing the you seeing the problem even increasing in, even more and you are almost saying that what you experienced as a kid as with uh, Emmett Till is not as greater than what the 14 years olds are experiencing now is if I'm on point, I'm off point. What, what's happening? Well, you're on point. I, I feel that back then under racism, we made more progress. We are regressive. We made more progress under those hard taskmasters. And we, I don't know, for some reason we forged ahead. But now, like you said, we're afraid of each other. We're we just destroying ourselves, right? I mean, we, of all crimes, basically, is black on black. Very seldom does a racial crime or rape go outside of the race. And uh, there's nobody, no, there's, what bothers me, there's no outrage among African-American leaders. No outrage. I, I write this falling apart, and you can't deny that. You see it, the statistics are there. Sure, we can blame the system, but the system's not going to be for you anyway. The system is there. But we have a responsibility. We did greater, to me, for, for what we had to work with back then than we are doing now, with all the opportunities we have, percentage-wise. Well, again, if I can reflect on the name of uh, of our organization, Black Wall Street, as it came from Tulsa, Oklahoma, in which, again, the, the destruction of Tulsa, Oklahoma, Black Wall Street, is because of a, uh, a black man making some contact with a white woman, which mm-hmm. resulted in Tulsa, Oklahoma, being destroyed. Um, is it too much to uh, is, it, is it too much to say that integration, whether it is integration economics or integration based on black men going for white women, have resulted in our destruction? Uh, that's a very involved, complex question, but I. I think you can see a little bit of all of it in there, you know. It, it's some, we just got twisted. We we got off base. We got we lost our focus from the time I'm 72 years old uh, in a couple of weeks, and our goals when I was a, when I was like 14, um, I, I became a barber. I was a barber for 55 years. I, I when sometimes became a newspaper. I was at one of the first papers. Uh, uh, a business person. I bought as a kid. I bought wholesale and I sold retail. And uh, my mother made me go to the bank. My mother was there. It made me go to the bank every week. I had to go to the bank. I got saved. So uh, I developed that habit. I became addicted. And uh, we, we don't have that anymore. It's just gone. I, I, this is what we had. We tried to set people up, children up with bank accounts. And if they came to the meeting, we're going to start them off with so much money, cash money out of our pockets. I think one or two kids came, family, just one or two. 
It is sad. So this is uh, activity that you're involved in now, and as you just pointed out, you are working with getting youth to go open a bank account with your own money to get them mm-hmm. started, and you're still mm-hmm. having a hard time for the youth to participate? Yes, yes, for sure. I said we only got two people to come out. What did you did you advertise free money? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's on eleven hundred black people out there. <laughs> and you advertise free money to open up a bank account, and you got a response yeah. of two people. Yeah, you you can't put the money in your pocket now. You got to go in the bank. Yeah, right. Well, still that means money. you're not going to see it. <laughs> well, but yeah. You have to be geared to saving and thinking about the future. Because at first when I started saving, I said, I don't want to save no money for 40 years from now. That was my thinking. But my mother said, you go in the bank every week. She made me. I didn't have a choice. And I, mm-hmm. I don't regret it. Okay, well, then maybe the your problem as far as recruiting is that the parents of today is not the parents that you had. True, and the parents were not there. These are grandparents tend to tend to be the uh, uh, family basis. The parents, a lot of the parents have substance abuse problems, or they're not there. In almost in ninety percent of the cases, the fathers are not there. So we're trying to do something about that right now. We're trying mm-hmm. to get fathers. We, we got a, what we call a dads class. We're trying to get dads back involved with their children and uh, give them the same opportunity and chance. That it made a difference. My dad was there. And it made a difference when my dad spoke. And tell me something about Summit, Illinois. Mm -hmm. Is is that where you are now? I'm in Summit. It's called Summit, Argo, Illinois. Uh, Summit, it was two towns. Uh, The Argo come from Argo, Starch, Missoula, and K.O. Serve. Summit annexed Argo in 1911. So now you could use either name. And we have about 10,000 people out here. And we got about 1,100 of them with African Americans. The 70% of our town now is Hispanics. Uh, so we we are about a half a mile wide, a mile and a half long, and we're right at 63rd in Harlem, and um, right there down from Midway Airport. African Americans have been here since the early 1900s. I came here in 1947 from Mississippi, and it's always been a viable place. You got the manufacturing companies here, so. Uh, we always had a little cluster of African Americans that, you know, came out and lived from Mississippi, hmm. Arkansas. What's the population again? Uh, 10,000 total. 10,000 and a percentage of black? 1,100. We always ran about 10%, that's all. Hmm, okay. Uh, so, and that's where you still... Is there a difference of cooperation based on your involvement with the youth, or is it basically the same as if you was here in the city? I well here you could I mean, that's probably better here I would think because we don't have the shooting, we don't have the violence, uh, the crime of such. I mean, your grandmother could walk the alleys all night, nobody gonna jump or anything. Uh, drugs are here, definitely drugs are here. Uh, so if everybody knew everybody, so if somebody break in your house this morning, you're going to find out who did it before the day is gone. So it's that kind of thing. But the crime, everything's, you know, our kids are not graduating from school. That's what bothers me. They're not mm. getting that education that they should. And that, that's terrible when you got young men and they're dropping out of school. I don't know, it makes me want to cry. 
Well, how do historically looking do people know who you are and upon them knowing who you are, what is their reaction or and is there a certain age element that relates to who you are? Well, you know, in the Bible, it says prophet is without honor in his own country. I don't call myself a prophet, but, you know, you black Wall Street, people know you say, yeah, that's all, uh, a card about card, you know, it's kind of like kind of like that. And, you know, if they go somewhere and somebody talk about Emmett Till, they say, oh, yeah, we know Emmett Till's a cousin, blah, blah, blah. But here, you know, everybody know everybody. And, and we've got some pretty respectable kids, pretty respectable. Talk. We know their parents and and uh, the grandparents, we know we know everybody. Everybody, 1,100 people, you know everybody. Plus, I was a town barber for 55 years. Oh, yeah, so you got in everybody's business, didn't you? Yeah, yeah I know everybody. I know everything. <laughs> <laughs> so what is, the, what is the youngest youth can relate to Emmett Till? Well, I mean, what age can I say, huh, who, who is that? Or what age is more, the coming of what age can relate to who Emmett Till is, and how young would you go down that that Emmett Till name is very vague? You understand what I'm asking? Yeah, I was in Atlanta, Georgia last week, and I spoke at three middle schools. The one school I asked who didn't know Emmett Till, and I think most of the kids did in the class did not know, never heard of Emmett Till. So in, uh, in okay, this middle town, school, have, what age is that about? That would be like from uh, seventh and eighth, junior high, junior high. Okay, did not high. know who Emmett was. Okay. Right, right. I was I was just surprised that some of them knew because the teacher taught them, but uh, they they those things do not impact them like it would be in in the history. It's just that's not there, you know, like it, like it should be. So uh, okay, but uh, here. here Mm-hmm. Can you take a? We have, I know you got to go pretty shortly. Can you take one call before uh, we, uh, you know, kind of close you out? Can you do yes. that? Yes. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. No okay. Sonia. Good evening. You listen to Black Wall Street USA with host Ron Carter, Chairman of Black Wall Street Chicago. I'm his co-host this evening, Sonia Cassandra Purdue. Our guest this evening is what Reverend Willie Parker. Uh, part of our history, part of the Emmett Till story. We're going to go to area code 301 uh, before Mr. Parker has to leave us. Area code 301, you're on the line with Black Wall Street USA. Who are you and what's your comment? Yeah, this is B.A. calling from Maryland, and thank you, Sonia. Thank you, Ron. Uh, good hey, evening. How are you doing uh, again, uh, Great. Uh, good evening, Reverend uh, Parker. Good evening. Um, Yes, I, I'm uh, 42 years old, born in 1968, uh, born and raised in the city of Detroit. Uh, and for me, uh, growing up, and even today as I reflect on uh, what I was taught, and, of course, I, I did learn of Emmett Till uh, roughly in my teenage years, but I must say that growing up in the city of Detroit, um, Emmett Till uh, the Little Rock Nine, uh, the Bus Boycott in Montgomery, it really didn't have uh, a, a, a mega, a major impact on me because the reason for you take Emmett Till for example, um, I, I know boys who 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 met similar fates. 
at the hands of black people. Yes. It's sad to say that, sir, but I, I, I you know, I, I, I've seen those type of bodies. Uh, things happen. Uh, but let me say, it, it's my understanding with Emmett Till that when the white men came and grabbed Emmett Till out of the house, that there were people in the car, black people included, uh, and even I, I, I'm told that from one documentary that the the the, the uh, woman that uh, Emmett allegedly uh, whistled at was in the car to identify that that was Emmett, uh-huh. uh, and in my that that's an accessory, uh-huh. you know, particularly when you know what's about to happen. Uh, was my understanding that blacks that gave Emmett up told where the boy lived and how to find him and whatnot. Uh, those are accessories, and, and and that was the case. My understanding is about you know uh, trying to get the case, uh, get those other people tried uh, for murder as well. Because again, if you know that these uh, hooligans are what they are capable of, and it appeared that many people in that town knew what they were capable of doing. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. It, 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 it's a sad situation. It was a sad jury. Uh, one of our congressmen was down there, Congressman uh, Charles C. Diggs from Detroit, was a, as an observer. Um, the, the, oh man, the, the take-home message today is a difficult one for me. It is a difficult one because of what we're doing to each other, Reverend Parker. It's difficult. It's a sad, it's a sad. Well, you know yeah. how can address his uh, points, uh, Reverend Parker, based on the accessory to the crime, based on blacks present having the insight or possible the insight of what was getting ready to happen? Did they know and did they point him out of where he lived? Yes, and uh, you have to go back to the times and understand the times. And it's going to be him or them, they they had they worked for this man, and we are sure that uh, that blacks were involved. I met a girl in Germany, 1960s, and she said her husband, Tutak Collins, was involved, not her husband, her uncle, and she said they had him to help say so he lost his mind behind that. You have to really understand the times that happened then, and I like one thing he said: we suffer more at our own hands. There was a sign that once said that. Uh, African Americans, I think, killed uh, so many thousand a year, whereas Cooper Fan killed six or seven. We're not enraged about that. It doesn't bother us, and that bothers me. We we have a perplexing situation and condition that we need to do something about. And, and one other question, and I'll be it, sir, if you don't mind, Reverend Parker, uh, a present day question, and I, and I, I'm with you 100% on education. I am with you. And I, again, I'm trying to. It's, I don't know. We, we 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 nothing is uh, surprising to me. Meaning the joblessness in our community is predictable, as you stated. If you don't have a high school diploma, and you need, of course, much, much, much more than that, uh, and something else. And I don't mean to be uh, dividing the people or whatever. On top of that, on top of the fact that our young people are being incarcerated and not getting education and so forth and so on, which is bad enough. You got, I don't know, anywhere between 10 and 40 million uh, illegal immigrants yearning for an opportunity, too, through the DREAM Act and and so forth and so on. So 
<laughs> you know, you you there's only so many jobs, only so many uh means of of of, of, of being productive. If if that happens, if you, if if the Hispanics come here with their work ethic and and and, and they take the minimum level, minimum skilled jobs, uh-huh. I don't know. I and I'm trying to tell my people what are y'all going to do? And yeah. unfortunately, I'm not getting the response. We can't we won't go back to them. We 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 just don't go backwards. But the jobs that we took, other people brought back and took them and put us out on the street. Yeah, and, and, and I know in, in Chicago, you know that Boeing just got a $35 billion contract from the Air Force. Mm-hmm. There was a time when black people were really in the Air Force. We were mm-hmm. really, uh, you know, at the turn of the century with Bessie Coleman, they were part of a, and the Tuskegee Airmen, they were part of a black aviation club, a black aviation uh, organization. Right. I mean, $35 billion coming to Boeing, and I'm asking a question for Chicago. Anyway, what, you know, what what is our involvement in that? You mean to tell me with taxpayer dollar you get $35 billion to build these uh, tankers, these flying tankers to refuel these jets, and African Americans? I mean, what, what, what piece of that do do we find ourselves with? You know, uh, but but, but uh, I'm continuing to strive, continuing to push. I got programs here in Maryland, and uh, you know, uh, I, I have a business, of course. So you know, I don't I don't only focus on African Americans. I do all I can, but um, we, the, we 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 got some difficult days ahead, as Dr. King said. You know, thank you, Reverend Parker. I appreciate it. God bless you. Uh, we appreciate you always coming and calling in on our program. You know, you you always insightful, um, help me to sit back and think when you make your comments as well. Um, so, Reverend, we're at this point where I think that you do have to make a run. Yeah, I'm grabbing my coat now. <laughs> okay. Well, look, we want to um, have you back on. Uh, we also maybe if you want to drive down um, uh, 63rd Street and make a left on uh, 43rd uh, on on I guess Cottage Grove and then come to our summit that's going to be uh, on 43rd right off Lake Park. We'd love to have you there. Uh, that's going to be uh, March uh, the 26th. We'd love to have you at our and that's how on, that's our on a Saturday. Pardon? That's on a Saturday, right? Correct. Yeah. Because okay. there's there is um what a relationship to economic development, to the social genocide as it relates to by ourselves or other people. And we have to be reminded of that. So, again, I want to thank you for coming on our program, and we do look forward to you uh, uh, coming back, and um, let's uh, make it happen. Okay. Thank you very much. God bless you, and keep your faith. Thank you again. All right. Bye. Bye now. Sonia Purdue. Yes, sir. I am here. Well, a great interview, and we certainly do appreciate Reverend Parker for taking the time out of his schedule to join us this evening. He's on his way out the door, uh, but we appreciate it. 
that he did stop to be with us this evening. For me, it's a historical moment. For me, it is very important. You listen to Black Wall Street USA on Blog Talk Radio. I'm Sonia Purdue, founder of CBBN, your, your co-host for this evening's show. We'll be right back after this break with our host, Ron Carter, to take your calls and give you an update on what's going on with Black Wall Street USA and Chicago's Black Business Network. Stay with us, please.
We're back, and you're listening to Black Wall Street USA on Blog Talk Radio. I'm Sonia Cassandra Purdue, founder of CBBN, and our host, Ron Carter, will be back with us shortly to take your calls and give you an update on what's going on with Black Wall Street. When we were last on the air, it was before the election, and Dr. Patricia Watkins was the candidate for mayor, was our guest, and Mr. Omar Sharif, founder of the African American Contractors Association, was with us. Mr. Sharif was here to answer the tough questions about where are the construction jobs for our communities. We want to reach out to both of them and thank them for their time, and we look forward to talking to them again after the election, and we look talk forward to talking to Mr. Sharif because we surely want to go back into that conversation again, and repeatedly we want to uh, reach out um, to them to call us and be a part of what we do. Black Wall Street USA is the official broadcast of Black Wall Street National, thanks to the support of the national office. And we're hoping that we get a call from the national president this evening, Michael Carter, to tell us what's going on with Black Wall Street across the nation and the upcoming national convention. You can listen to our shows at blackwallstreetdistrict.com. We have a uh, big logo there right on that page. That's Black Wall Street. BlackWallStreetDistrict.com. You can also listen to the rebroadcast of the show at WJPC Chicago, Saturday mornings from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. That's www.wjpcchicago.com. And during the week, you can really listen to some great music because I do listen to WJPC Chicago. This is Black Wall Street USA. Our call in number is 347-326-9477. The chat room is open. Leave your company information and website links in the chat room. That is how we connect. Press the number one if you'd like to speak to our host or you have a question or comment. CBBN on Blog Talk Radio is also on the air Tuesday evenings with the CBBN Members Show. That's at 6.30 p.m. That's where we permit our members to come on the air, share their visions and business plans, and promote themselves. That's what we do for our members. The Consumer Show is on the air Tuesdays at 7.30 p.m. with attorney and CPA Derek McNeil. Now, Mr. McNeil was not on the air this Tuesday, but Marcus Allen and I had some great dialogues, great dialogues. And you can listen to that show in our archives. Join us every Tuesday, every Thursday evening right here for Black Wall Street USA. We're here 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. on Thursday, and we invite you to be a part of sustaining and increasing black businesses across the country. Now, next week, let's talk about our upcoming guest for next week. Next Thursday, which is March 10th, at the same time, 7 p.m., Mr. Shaka Barak. President of the Marcus Garvey Institute will be our guest. Mr. Barat has served as president since 1992. I know they pronounce his name all kind of ways. Um, the institute was set up has set up a traveling art exhibit used in lectures on Marcus Garvey's achievements, especially in big business such as shipping, corporations, manufacturing, grocery stores, and restaurants. They've traveled to universities, museums, festivals, and other businesses across this country. And we want to hear more and more and more about what's going on with that exhibit, what's going on with the Marcus Garvey Institute, and the reaction to the history of Marcus Garvey. As uh, Reverend Parker just shared with us, there, you know, when he asked 
uh, of the middle grades uh, when he was down in Atlanta speaking to these three middle schools. How many of you know Emmett Till? Know the story of Emmett Till? Other words, know our history. And there were very few who knew. In other words, in 2011, they're not really teaching black history, are they? Uh, also, probably the reaction would be would be the same if you asked who was Marcus Garvey. And not only other young people, ask a room of older people if they know who Marcus Garvey is. So we want to be sure that uh, we reach out to him. We appreciate him taking the time. Also, I want uh, him to tell us his experiences as traveling from town to town to town as he looks at black economics in different places. Remember we said this show has a national focus, and that's what we want to hear about. Those are the things that we want to talk about. We are connecting the dots. CBBN will host a business meeting. I'm going to talk about events for a moment or two. This business planning meeting is open to the public. It will be on Saturday, March the 12th, 2011, from 2.30 p.m. to 4 p.m. We ask that you join us for this meeting with other CBBM members to discuss upcoming events and programs. This event will be at the King Branch Library, located at 35th and King Drive, right here in Chicago. Matter of fact, it's our first business planning meeting because um, – can't do it by myself. I want to form a team. I want to make this a success. I want the collaboration of the members. We have 700-plus members now to make these upcoming events uh, a benefit for not only the members but also the community. Our thing for 2011 is let's talk about nothing but success in 2011. Let's talk about nothing but success in 2011. Our discussion will include the following items. Upcoming job fair in April and May, we're going to produce those. Uh, real job fair with real jobs. Wouldn't that be a surprise? Upcoming business expo in October 2011. Jobs training and services for youth program outreach. I am in the process of developing uh, jobs training and services for youth program. It has always been one of our functions, and part of the business planning meeting is going to be how you and your organization can participate in this program. We want to talk about collaboration with other organizations in ways that strengthen all of our bases and permit us to move to the next level of success. And we have some other things in the work, but we'll talk about those activities at the upcoming upcoming meeting. That's Saturday, March 12, 2.30 to 4 p.m. I can't do it by myself. My list of things to do is about 1,000. So call me at 312-239-8835, 312-239-8835 to RSVP. Leave me your email address, please, so we can stay connected. And uh, if you'd like to be on an upcoming show, please also let me know. A number of members as part of our profile said that, yes, they would like to be on an upcoming show. So give me a call and let me know, and we'll start with, with scheduling ahead now. Wow, isn't that great? And we want to book you into one of our upcoming shows. You're listening to Black Wall Street USA. I'm Sonia Cassandra Purdue, founder of CBBN and author of Black America, Asking Ourselves the Tough Questions, which you can purchase on Amazon.com. Let's welcome our host back to the show. Ron Carter, you're back on the air. So, how was that interview with Mr. Parker? 
Let me tell you, it was uh, historical for me. Uh, you know, there are many questions that we, you know, could have asked as relate to his personal feelings, uh, but that definitely was uh, historical uh, for me and gave me a great privilege to uh, ask someone that actually who's witnessed that. But I believe that the uh, our caller from uh, Maryland, he kind of uh, was probably related to today, that the youth today see that happen to them, to themselves. They see their, uh, you know, matter of fact, we see it on uh, TV a lot now uh, from these uh, cell phones. People getting beat up right in, in the middle of the street. And it just so happens that when we see that, it is black on black opposed to uh, white on black or black on, on, on white. And so we see that every day, and sometimes maybe we sometimes get uh, immune to it as the youth today not only see it in the movies, but uh, I've been told that the video games, uh, the violence in the video games are making almost as much money as the, the movies are making. And so uh, have we... Have the youth today say, so what? <laughs> I see it every day. Um, and But personally for me, uh, it gives me, um, I don't know if the right term is an honor to interview him based on something real, happened real sad, but that's something that happened that was exposed to the public because so many times it has happened and has not been recorded. Um, yeah, I do definitely want to have him back. Uh, and I guess definitely is the line of my questions was trying to get a feel of our sociological type of mentality, mentality as it relates to economics, uh, is that the, the whites that did that to Emmett Till, uh, did they do it to suppress blacks? Or uh, I think I said one time before when I was a kid, when I grow up, I'm not going to have to deal with this racism because all the white races are going to be dead. So I don't have to deal with it. But... It seems as though they have taught their children well, and we have not taught our children well as far as what happened to Emmett Till. Uh, and as it says in the Jewish community, uh, never again as they continue to tell their children. And sometimes we try to hide the uh, the truth from our children. So we do get that Willie syndrome, Willie Willie Lynch syndrome that still haunts us, as well as our convenience of not having to 
identify with being black. I don't know if all that. So I think I got all of that from from that interview, and a lot more that we did not talk about. Uh, so the history still remains with us, and there are many people that have are still here. Uh, they have witnessed that horrible part of history. Uh, even as we look at Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, you know, as they indicate in the movie, in the documentary, before they die. So those that have actually been through the 1921s, the 1950s, the 1960s, they're still alive, and they they have their stories, but their stories are not being told to the point that our children do not use those stories uh, as a, a, I guess, a sense of strength of the black race, opposed to a sense of being degraded. So again, to me, I got a lot out of that interview. Uh, there was a lot more that I can talk about, and again, uh, the Reverend was no, you know, he was a minister and a, uh, and a barber and active in the community, but he wasn't putting himself on a pedestal to be above. Uh, he indicated he still had his flashbacks of what happened when he was 14 years old to, the, to now he's 72 years old, he, he still carried that history with him. Uh, our caller uh, indicated, you know, in other documentaries that that probably would not have happened to Emmett Till if some blacks kept their mouths shut. And then uh, Reverend uh, Parker indicated, well, that was different times. Uh, some blacks had to open their mouths because they work for those same people that uh, killed Emmett Till. So it tells a lot of different stories, a lot of different things that was going on where you, you know, like even today, uh, uh, blacks today said, if I was a slave, I'd be dead today. But there were a lot of slaves that are dead because they refused to, uh, to be a slave. Uh, and there were many slaves that were killed. <laughs> I think that there was a number about, uh, I think over 2 million uh, Africans that came from Africa here were killed because they refused to be a slave. Now, many more did come across that accept being a slave, but the story of, you know, if we could say, Armistead, you know, there was many stories like that where they refused to be a slave. And there were many cases where uh, some blacks probably would not accept uh, Emmett Till being taken by um, white folks out of their home. I mean, uh, Reverend Park at the time was 14 years old. Do he just sit back and watch? Was there other blacks that 
seen these white guys taking the teal away from the house? Did they just watch or and so there's so many different things that happen then and how do we reflect them today? Uh so it means a lot of things to me and a lot of different questions of our social conditioning. Um yeah, what was your thoughts, Sonia? You're listening to Black Wall Street USA. I'm Sonia Purdue. You're listening to our host, Ron Carter, chairman of Black Wall Street Chicago, and he's reflecting on the interview uh, earlier in the show with Reverend Willa Parker, who is the cousin of Emmett Till, who was murdered in 1955. Uh, you covered a lot of ground there, Ron, a lot of ground on that one question. Let me uh, touch bases on a couple of things. I said in the uh, introduction to Reverend Parker that doing that symposium down at the Chicago Cultural Center, uh, when I turned and looked at him, because I didn't know who Reverend Parker was, I would not have recognized him, um, because at the beginning of the discussion, he was sitting in the first row of the audience with a group of other men. and But when they put that picture of Emmett Till up, his battered body, uh, I saw this black man wiping his eyes uh, 55 years later looking at that picture still moves him because it moves me. And uh, so it, it, it doesn't go away. It never goes away. And no one can understand it better than him and those people that were involved at that time. Now, also doing that symposium, they indicated that most of the people, almost all of the people who were there then are dead. So it made the cold case very difficult to uh, to to follow up on. A lot of the evidence and a lot of the information was destroyed. But you can only get uh, this insight from talking to him personally to know that he met someone in Africa who had been part of the roundup of Everett Till and that person had lived with that regret to the point that it had destroyed their mind and their hearts too, I'm sure. Uh, so there were a lot of people involved, and everyone had to live with this, and that's an interesting story in itself. Even the white people, the black people, the town, the people who watched him being taken, the people who lived through that week and after that in that town, that's an interesting story in itself as to how do you live with that with that happening. And so I, that's one of the things that I got out of that. He was very straightforward about the children of that time and because of his involvement, and I understand he does travel a lot. I did talk to him down in Atlanta. I understand that he does travel a lot and he speaks a lot of places. And what he sees uh, saddens him, and he probably feels because he alone can do nothing about it. That's our tremendous uh, our socioeconomic problems are, he alone cannot do anything about it. And I've asked this question, too, about different things. And in my book and, and out of my book, where is the outrage? Where is the outrage about what's happening in our community and what's going on with, with our young people? Also, uh, you mentioned you came back to something else about the the violence in the videos, uh, horrible violence. Horrible! I don't know if you've been on any of those video games. I have been on one and two of them. Horrible violence, horrible killing, repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. You get points for killing. 
uh, your score goes up for how many people you can kill, how bloody the room is, and can you survive the killing, which we know in real life no one does. No one survives that. But I use this example, and I've used this example before. Uh, I used to listen to Tupac. I liked Tupac. I really did. I had, you know, I was probably in my 40s, uh, so I wasn't listening to him when he was alive, but someone gave me a tape. Yeah, he's good. You should listen to him. And he was good. And the words, he was genius. Yes, he was. He was genius. But his words were violent. They were very aggressive. His music was. And I, would, and I had started putting the tape in my car and driving downtown to work to Royal Bank of Canada. I'm already aggressive. And I would listen to that, and I would be more aggressive. I had to literally stop listening. I have never listened to him again. Uh, I've never listened to him again because it was raising my level of aggression. So just from that experience, that one experience, I myself can testify that you are affected. I was learning the words to it and bopping to it and this. I said, oh, now, hold on. Let's, let's hold on. He is good, but just from that basic experience, through that short period. So if this is on and on and on, day after day after day, can you imagine the insanity going on in someone's head, playing those games, listen to violent music? Is there any any wonder why they have why people have just lost their minds? It's it's that programming, it's that feeding, and uh, I felt that aggression, and I had I had to pull back from it because I was just I was just too assertive. You know, it calmed down a little bit, plus the coffee. So that's very, very much, if that isn't cured, and you can't tell everybody what to listen to. You're not going to control what everybody listens to. And our generation, the generation before us had problems with our music. Their generation before that had problems with their music and dancing. But was it as violent? Was the violence there? It was the, the I think they were more concerned about the sex and the romance and, the uh, moving and twisting of the body a little bit more, but was the violence in the music, beating people, killing people, shooting people, the violence was not in that music, okay? They were getting in trouble in other ways, okay, becoming sexually aggressive. So without changing the majority of what they listen to, I don't think you're going to change anything. I don't I don't think you're going to change it at all. And uh, that's one of the points I wanted to uh, come to. Uh, yes, I am so appreciative of Reverend Parker being here. Uh, for me, that is living history. It is something that that you just can't, um, I can almost not put it in words what I feel uh, meeting him and uh, him being a part and coming coming over, and I'm hoping that he really, really does come over and be a part of the Black Wall Street Summit on March 26th. I want to um, I want you to talk a few minutes um, about what's going on with Black Wall Street Chicago. Our national chairman was on the line. I told him to be patient, but he's gone. He'll be back in a few minutes, probably answering his phone. He wants to talk about the national convention. Now, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what's going on with Black Wall Street Chicago until he comes back to us? Yeah, we're going to kick some feet. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> and what does that mean, Chairman? What's going on? 
We mad as hell and we ain't going to take no more. Um, I guess that as you um, kind of reflect to the violence and how it uh, it does have an influence in one's thinking and behavior, uh, to me, the the lack of parity and equality for blacks in the economics of the city of Chicago and around this country is is my aggression. Is the aggression that keeps me moving with Black Wall Street and knowing that our agenda is true and it must be carried out. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, Black Wall Street had a, uh, a committee meeting earlier today, this morning, every Thursday morning at 8.30. We have our committee meeting, and the first of the month we have our board meeting. And as we, as I relate to uh, Reverend Parker, giving what you stated about violence and giving our direction of Black Wall Street, uh, to me, it, it brings things to a head that the agenda of Black Wall Street is, to me, the the ultimate of what we need to be about other than our worship and belief, belief in God. After that belief and after that serving of God, uh, I believe our direction is to do exactly what Black Wall Street is doing. Uh, it's sickening to me how our leadership in Chicago has abandoned its role and responsibility, and it makes me feel, I don't know if many of you or our, or our uh, listeners uh let me ask you, Sonia, have you seen the movie Braveheart? Yes, I have. I believe that's with Mel Gibson. Correct. And Not that I movie, remember it, but go ahead. Okay, in the movie Braveheart, it was the uh, the Scottish trying to get their freedom from the English. And as hard as the Scottish fought, to be free from uh, English control and oppression, their hardest fight was with their noble Scottish leaders. And every time they get a handle on having victory for their people, the noble Scottish people came in and to manipulate the process to put that process back. And that is what I see that is has been taking place here in Chicago. So we're getting a lot of mixed messages, but even with all those mixed messages, uh, Black Wall Street, I believe, is the most clear definition of black empowerment that exists in Chicago and for that matter, in the United States. Uh, because there is the other ethnic groups that have all the ingredients 
They have their language. They have their culture. They have their uh, geographical location. And then they have their sense of value that keeps them at a, 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 a lock of, on the issues. We don't have that luxury. But, and we don't have that luxury because we have that, 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 that part of the Braveheart movie where our leadership as noble people are used to divide us, to keep us separated. And I always call that is uh, being organized to be disorganized. So that's what I believe that we're up against here in uh, Chicago with Black Wall Street. Um, and as we do so, our meeting today, uh, we focus on putting our summit together for March 26th. And as we work to pool the resources to address our 16 Black Wall Street districts, our parity, of contracts, our government oversight to make sure we're getting our fair share of government money to implement our programs. Uh, as we talk about black contractors in the neighborhood, we are focused with our agendas for the summit. And as we are focused for that, we still have to move on to our internal development to keep our agenda focused. So um, we're moving fast. Uh, we're moving steady toward our summit on February 26th, and then on our uh, reception, it was going to be, I'm sorry, on March 26th, and our reception was going to be uh, on May 19th, here at March 19th, <laughs> here at our office. And so what we're doing is... Uh, uh, just keeping our agenda real focus. Uh, I just have to say that I still have reflections listening to uh, Reverend Parker as he told the story, and as many stories came out of that interview. And of all those stories, um, uh, have a lot to do with the many agendas that we have today, especially when we want to build our Black Wall Street districts uh, and I do feel proud that uh, three years ago we only had one Black Wall Street district, uh, and now today we're looking at 16 Black Wall Street districts. Many are at different levels, uh, but when the Chicago Urban League made the comment that Chicago will be the next Black Wall Street district, I don't think they knew what they were professing to be where we are today. Uh, so with the weight of the, the spirit of the Black Wall Street districts, uh, along with all the implementation and the organizing that we have to do to do it with the limited resources, I feel good of our committee and our board that stand uh, very uh, uh, focus on what we have to do, not only here in Chicago, but as we prepare to get ready for the 
summit, national summit, that's going to be held in Gary, Indiana, in October of this year. So we're we got a heavy agenda, Sonia, and uh, we got to uh, as much as you do uh, with the Chicago's Black Business Network. Uh, we're gonna sneak around the corner and grab you. You're listening to Black Wall Street USA with Chairman of Black Wall Street Chicago, Ron Carter, and Sonia Perdue is co-host for this segment. Ron, let's take a short break, and we're going to be right back and talk about Black Wall Street just a little bit more. Thank you so much for being with us this evening and being a part of sustaining and increasing black businesses. Flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new life for me, yeah, it's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new life for me, and I'm feeling good. Fly out in the sun, you know what I mean, don't you know? Butterflies all having fun, you know what I mean. Sleep in peace when day is done, that's what I mean. And this old world is a new world and a bold world for me. Listening to Black Wall Street USA. I'm Sonia Cassandra Purdue, the co host for this segment. Ron Carter, Chairman of Black Wall Street Chicago, will be back with us shortly. Want to remind you that we're here every Thursday evening, 
7 p.m. to 9 p.m. We invite you to be part of sustaining and increasing black businesses. Our caller number is 347-326-9477. The chat room is open. Leave your company information in the chat room. Press the number one if you'd like to speak to our host. Or if you have a question or comment, want to also remind you that CBBN on Blog Talk Radio is on the air every Tuesday evening with the CBBN Member Show at 6.30 p.m. and the Consumer Show at 7.30 p.m. with attorney and CPA Derek McNeil. Please call in and be a part of all that we're doing. I want to remind you we are having a business planning meeting for CBBN March 12th at the King Branch Library located at 35th and King Drive. It is open to the public, and we certainly, certainly want you to be a part of all that we do. I'm going to bring the Chairman of Black Wall Street Chicago on the line, and I'm thinking that this is our national president, Michael Carter, out of Oakland on the line. Welcome back to the show, Ron. Welcome to the show, Michael Carter. Good evening. Good evening, uh, Michael Carter. Talked to you earlier today, didn't I? Yes, you did. Didn't I talk to you yesterday or the day before then, too? Uh, yeah, we, we've been talking a whole lot lately. Are we going to start talking a lot more than we used to nowadays? Yeah. It's getting, yeah, yeah. So I'm going I'm to be in, in, in your ear and, and letting you know what's going on around the country. I'm just happy, but, you know, before I um, even touch bases on the, the convention and what you are coming up, uh, I just have to say anybody in Chicago, if you if you have not been uh, at least to the grave site uh, of Brother Emmett Till and Alsip, I, I encourage you. That was one of the things I wanted to do in college. Uh, and, and, you know, the story and the fact that his mother insisted that his coffin was open. That was a message uh, to be sent down through the generation, and, and I call that a Jesus-type message because what Jesus did was he sent parables and made examples and expounded on things so that it would last well past his physical lifetime and, the, and well past his disciples' lifetime and the beginning of the church. And so for his mother to... Uh, insist that his coffin was open so that the world could see the venom and the hate and, and, and the degradation that our people have suffered in this nation just on the body of a 14-year-old boy. That sent uh, reverberations throughout the globe. Uh, it sent a message as to who America at that time really was and how racism festered and how it was... It was uh, it was a pinnacle point. Uh, yes, the way he died was horrible, and, 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 and how they chose him arbitrarily was horrible because it was, it was the way white folks viewed black folks, and that had to send a wave across the world, not just in America, that America has not changed in 55, and then what did it do? It started a movement. And uh, it is, I don't know, it has to be divine intervention that his body is in the state of Illinois because Illinois has really taken on this spirit of Tulsa in a way that uh, other cities are are looking at. So I just wanted to, you know, Reverend Parker, he touched my heart. 
um, but I encourage, you know, everybody listening to, you know, read up on that story. It, it's what America was, and to some degree we're still there. So when you, uh, one thing, so you, you were listening in on uh, Reverend Parker doing the interview. Absolutely. Okay, so how do you uh, relate uh, our role today as um, as a being as relates to uh, Black Wall Street? Uh, again, the uh, if we can't say the the how can I put it? I don't know if it was the whistle or the uh, the contact with a Caucasian woman resulted in the destruction of black economics. I don't know if that's a good uh, it, it, analysis. But it, yeah, I, I know where you're going with that. It, it's, it's not about black economics. This is about a, a very evil and unholy spirit that had, that had, you know, crept into the hearts and minds of, of those who the Jim Crow era and, and his grandson and his great grandson and hatred. It just so happened to interrupt the uh, economic flow. Uh, and and hatred is at the root of it, Ron. It, 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 you can't, you know, point pinpoint it in any one direction. But now there is a similarity in the fact that uh, he was accused of trying to talk to a white woman. Now remember, the white woman is the white man's precious jewel, and anything that uh, resembles Af- Afro's features or background. Attacking it's just a big bugaboo for white men to see, uh, you know, a white girl with a black man. Although these white fathers send their daughters to these college campuses and uh, damn near kidnap these black athletes, you know, to trail them in case they make a lot of money. And that's just an attempt to keep the money in the white community, but uh, it is what it is. Uh, Dick Rowland was accused of uh, grabbing the arm or trying to uh, rape uh, or, you know, make a pass at Sarah Page, which sparked the riot in Tulsa, Oklahoma. His name was uh, Dick Rowland, and her name was Sarah Page, who was an elevator operator, and that just escalated into, you know, uh, tit-for-tat, who's the strongest and all of this stuff between the black men and the white men in that day. The riot came about because, you know, a black man uh, took a gun from a white man. He didn't like it, so he shot him, and that's how the riot started. But at the, at the root of it, it's really not about the white girl and the black boy. It's about hatred. And, uh, Let me uh, the, ask you, um, what could be the difference, or is there a difference between the movement of Black Wall Street compared to the movement of Marcus Garvey, the movement of Elijah Muhammad, and Malcolm X, based on all four head, is it a sense of black nationalism that drives black Wall Street versus Marcus Garvey versus Malcolm X versus uh, black nationalism. Is there a similarity, 
or if all of those three movements separate to themselves? Well, I, I'm, I always go to the root of what those movements represented. Now, uh, you know, you had the, the Marcus Garvey movement, uh, you know, the red, the black, the green, wanting to go back to Africa, connect with our, our motherland. Well, now let's back up. There was a spirit behind that. Now you have the movement with Honorable Elijah Muhammad, you know, um, do for self, uh, how to eat to live. Uh, you know, there's protocol. Now you have uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan. But at the root of it, I don't care. You, if you hear Minister Farrakhan talk, uh, he always has something to say about back home or his West Indian mother and the spirit that she uh, uh, generated in him. So for me as a minister, first, I, I must deal with the spirit. So what was the spirit? The spirit behind all of those movements was if white folks can have success economically, free will and you know civil rights and the right to vote, why can't we, you see? And But uh, there's a spirit behind making that happen. Now, what I teach young people is don't get caught up on the civil rights movement. There's more to it than that. Before our ancestors were even able to even have any semblance of freedom, there had to have been a spiritual movement in our ancestors. In other words, those who worked in the cotton fields and the tobacco fields, there was a spirit, but they didn't control education in America. They didn't control communications, uh, intermodal, the railroads. They were working in the fields and on the farms and on the plantations. They did not have access to power. Uh, uh, all they had was God. So, therefore, there had to be a spiritual movement. So I don't want to hear people talk about, well, I was around during the civil rights movement. Well, that's fine, but you must understand something had to happen with God first. And that that spirit had to be right. So when you have a Marcus Garvey, when you have a Martin Luther King, a, a Malcolm X, a, a Louis Farrakhan, a Minister Louis Farrakhan, uh, and Stokely Carmichael, and Medgar Evers, and Primus King, and you know all of these you know people who lead movements, there is a spirit behind it. Now, the SCLC has a role. The Urban League has a role. The NAACP has a role. Well, like most humans, that spirit can die in some of those organizations, and they no longer effective. But the spirit never dies; it always finds some place to uh, take up residence. And what it has done is, uh, through you and Sonia and the district leaders around the country, they say, "Hey, well, now that we know about this Black Wall Street and the spirit of what it was really all about, I'm gonna take on that spirit." And it's really a spirit of God, to be honest with you, but. They say, I'm going to take on the spirit, and then the spirit causes the movement. The spirit causes whatever movement, you can call it whatever you want. You can put any leader on top of it that you'd like. But now, for humanity, as, my, as far as my belief goes, the first movement for humanity into good, in order to get back into good graces with God, that's, that movement had to have been led by Jesus Christ, in my view. And that's my you personal know. Right. Well, now, as I asked the question regarding those movements that have uh, uh, a singular theme of self-help or black businesses, you're right. All of them have a, 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 a root 
to their spirituality, even to the point as you being the leader of the National uh, Black Wall Street USA. Uh, all of them have that spiritual look. Taking that in consideration, and this is coming to be the second anniversary of the, or the second uh, annual convention of the Black Wall Street USA, how do those entities that still exist, there are still mm -hmm. followers of uh, Marcus Garvey, there's still um, followers of Elijah Muhammad from um, from the uh, uh, from Louis Farrakhan. There's still those that believe in the economic uh, direction of um, of Malcolm X, and then there is the Black Wall Street. How or do the Black Wall Street? pull those resources of those same individuals that have the roots of spirituality that drives their mission with the basis of self-sustaining a people. How or do or is that the role of Black Wall Street USA to make that happen? My my vision, the vision that God has given me, Ron, is to have a Black Wall Street district somewhere in this country, in the hood or in the, the black neighborhood, where you're on one block, and on this one block, you have the Office for the Nation of Islam. You have the Urban League Office, the NAACP Office. Now, not downtown, not in a plus, you know, nice Beverly Hill-type neighborhood. I'm talking about in, on Crenshaw or on Imperial in San Diego, or on University in Seattle, or on East 75th Street in uh, Chicago, or South 9th Street in Newark. Wherever we have a Black Wall Street, I envision a block where the offices of, you know, uh, 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 SCLC and Urban League, all of them are right there. So then what that means is that uh, a teenager in Till's age, when he walk out of his house in the Chatham District in Chicago, and he go down East 75th Street, he got every last one of the organizations right there in his, in his neighborhood, a satellite office. And nowadays we have the Internet, you know, they really trying to close offices or whatever, but that's my vision because, see, each one of those organizations has something to bring to the table. You know, I, I, I said the other night to one brother that works with us, if I had asked the Lord for anything, I would have loved to have been able to just walk down Greenwood, Arch, and Pine in Tulsa just for a day, one day in my life before it was destroyed, to see Mount Zion and the, 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 the theater, the Dreamland Theater and all of that. If I could just have one day prior to, to June 1st, 1921, in that little 36-square-block area, there were black organizations working together. The organizations did different things, and it's on the website as to what they did. Um, that's my vision. That's the vision here. Because our young people deserve to be able to walk out of the door in their neighborhood and have a National Action Network satellite office right there in their neighborhood. See, until we get there, I'm not interested in how affirmative active one generation of black folks was to be able are to contract with the state. Are those individuals going to be uh, outreach and have they been communicated 
with that vision or that's just something in the process that needs to happen or has that that to bring that to their attention? It needs to happen, and it's not happening. Uh, uh, 85% of what you call black events are outside of the areas where African Americans live, like the expos and the summits and conferences and, and things of that nature, which would put money into the, the black community. Sororities and fraternities have their events at, you know, nice hotels, and that's fine, do your thing. But the bottom line is uh, our young people need to see, you know, we talk about these organizations, we talk about these leaders, we talk about what, what has been done, but it's not reflected in the places where young people live. And, and, and so we welcome, again, we welcome uh, any organization, especially those who are deeply rooted in the African-American community, to join us. But our organization is not a political organization or a organization that's trying to rally to become some huge black organization. No, this is governed by the spirit. And, and everyone who is a district leader, whether it's a black Wall Street district in this nation, Black Wall Street National did not go recruit them. They came to us. Why? Because they were in the spirit already. We were in the spirit already. There was no need for a meeting. We connected. And that is the spirit of it. I don't care what their resume says or where they've been in the world. I've been to 38 countries. That makes me no more important than anyone else. So none of that matters. What matters is, Ron, is that when that woman called me from Columbus, Columbus, Mississippi, right on the border of Alabama from a radio station, she hollered so loud, uh, Columbus wants a black Wall Street district, you see, because they are already in the spirit in Columbus, Mississippi. In how, many, uh, how, how are we looking now as going moving to the uh – uh, to the national convention that will be in um, uh, Gary, Indiana, on October. How many uh, districts around the country we have now? Well, now let's see. It seems like every month you've given birth to one. So um, there are approximately twenty. If if I heard your numbers right earlier, if you added one more, there's twenty-seven. And I, to run them down, you can go on the national website, blackwallstreet.org uh, or blackwallstreetdistrict.com and count them yourself. But Chicago, uh, in Chicago land, has, uh, I think you said 16. So you got East Coast, Newark, and Atlanta. West Coast is uh, San Diego, Los Angeles, thanks to Sonia. Um, and then the sister that was heading San Diego. She went on and established it. They're off and running. And so she's going to go to Sacramento and establish one there, and then Oakland, of course, and Seattle. Baton Rouge, um, and I'm, I'm missing somebody. But um, 26 or 27. So what is, what's going to happen at this national uh, uh, convention in October? I mean, we're going to have these uh, black Wall Streets from around the country uh, come together at this uh, national uh, summit or, or convention, what's going to be the, the result after everybody leaves? Well, the first first priority, the very first priority, is to uh, introduce other district leaders uh, around the country to one another or representatives 
And then, for example, the group in Newark, New Jersey, they came on last year just before the convention. Um, they're going to share uh, how they're refurbishing homes. If you go to the national site, you'll see a video of them from MSNBC, uh, how they refurbish homes for the working class. Um, there's a, it's economics, but it's not, you know, putting up retail everywhere. They want to establish the home, the neighborhood first. Then that will create the retail flow of dollars. Well, we're going to take Newark's example, and they'll introduce that to all the other districts, whatever San Diego is doing. The bishop there, Bishop McKinney, just received approval to build a, a convention center and a, a retail strip. Uh, and a parking lot garage right across from where he has a $10 million uh, senior housing in that little corridor on Imperial. So each district will share their models of what works Now, is that going to be, now we understand it's going to be uh, in Gary, Indiana, at the Genesis Center. That's October the 20, what's that, 21st? 21st 23rd? Yes, and then this year... Yeah, 21st through the 23rd. And this year we want to make sure that we have on Sunday uh, the tours of the uh, Gary and Chicago districts, as many as we can we can hit since so many are coming on. I want if I to, can take a um, – is, when we say is there – is this a convention? Is this a convention where the different districts go on to display their banners of Washington uh, – Oakland, uh, San Diego, Chicago, 75th Street, Chicago, uh, 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 yeah, 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 and, and Chicago gonna have half the flow because you guys are well, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's that a good thing. <laughs> but that's a good thing. Time, but is that the uh, is that the sense of the convention? Uh, where, you know, typical conventions where representatives from each area are showing their banners, giving their reports. Is, right. is that the feel of it? Or what, what's the, what would be the feel of it? What, what could people that's expect? That's or even to the point that people that are not part of a black Wall Street district, why would they want to come? Well, now let me just share this with you. Um, uh, Ricky Cease, who is the chairperson for Gary, we were talking, and he was saying how surprised he was that very few people knew about Black Wall Street Tulsa. And so we must understand that this is, that first of all, you're on the right track as to the, uh, the, the dynamics of a convention. But this is an educational uh, piece. Uh, chairman, I we almost are out of time, so okay. uh, Sonia is going to kick my booty. Because I ain't give her enough time to uh, do what she got to do. Give us a, a, a real in 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 two minutes. All right. And I'll tell you what, not two minutes. Let's, let's try to wrap this up in uh, the next, uh, uh, yeah, two minutes. <laughs> okay, all I need is a minute. Look, this is what I want folks to do. First of all, for those of you who don't have a district in your community, you still can join the organization. Go to blackwallstreet.org or blackwallstreetdistrict.com and join. Uh, and then for those of you who want to attend the convention, go there and register for the convention. Do that now. Uh, and, and also we, we want to encourage those who are already members of whatever district you are around the country to pay your dues. 
uh, and to support what we're doing. Um, but go to blackwallstreetdistrict.com, uh, watch the videos, download whatever you need to download. And, and finally, uh, I encourage any businesses out there that are listening, you need to support this show. Call someone. Get your ad on the air. We want to have more breaks where, where she got to go tell Ron, stop talking so much because we got these advertisers. That's what I want to hear. I want you to advertise on this show. Uh, uh, this is how we're going to keep this thing going. Uh, Sonia has the drums, and we want her to beat her drums. Um, and so if Ricky ceases listening and his team, give me a call so I can update you. Ron, thank you for all that you do. And tell Mark Allen and all the rest of them that I, I really appreciate what they're doing. Well, look, we appreciate you for having a vision that has spread seeds all over this nation. And I think at one point uh, I thought I heard you say something about Black Wall Street and South Africa. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. You have videos there as well. And uh, the Council General. I want to ask you, is South Africa already a, a, a Black Wall Street but, again, that goes back to the spirit of the impression of South Africa as well. So, right. um, um, Brother Reverend Carter, Michael Carter, we appreciate you. And as I said in the beginning, I think uh, we're all going to start talking a lot more with each other as we build this movement for Black Wall Street. So let's stay in touch. And I want to bring on our dear sister, Sonia, and maybe uh, I can blame it on the preacher. Sonia? You can blame <laughs> I'm getting smarter, Mr. Carter. You listen to Black Wall Street USA with Sonia Purdue, our host, Ron Carter, chairman of Black Wall Street Chicago, and our national president, Michael Carter. Uh, you gave me my two minutes, but you know what? Area code two one nine, you're on the air. Who's on who's on the line from two one nine? Ricky Cease. Oh. Hi Ricky, how are you? You get you get so. sixty seconds to say hello to everybody. <laughs> hello, hello, hello everybody. This is uh this is my first time on the call and I wanna say uh that I'm impressed and uh super excited. Very okay. great. It's Glad cool. you uh, called in. We probably, you know, you're going to be asked to come on a lot more as Gary hosts the second uh, Black Wall Street uh, convention in October. Well, you know what? Let let me say this real quick. When Michael said that if he can go back into 1921 and just have a day. Uh, when I looked again at that YouTube and I looked at all 12 segments. And I promise you, honest to God, I said, Lord, I wish that I can go back there in that day, in that time, and walk through there myself. I just said that. So when he said that, I was like, wow, because I, I share that same sentiment. I wish I can go back and see that. Ricky, we want to thank you for this call of spirit. We want to thank you for being a part of Black Wall Street USA. Tune in next week. We're here every Thursday evening from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Gentlemen, gentlemen, thank you for reaching out around the world. We appreciate you. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. <laughs>